0: Yeah, it can't vent. Yeah, I'm in the search for peace, at least and a better spot to settle. My brother said the Americans haven't got
1: a ghetto. Hey, everybody! Welcome to the show, Community Spread. I'm your host, Kevin Lundell. We have a really important guest on the the pod today. His name is Malik Dio, and if you've been in or around the Ogden area, you've heard his name a lot recently because he is really leading the charge on police reform in this area. He's led some really important protests uh, recently about police reform. He's even had conversations with our United States Senator, Mike Lee, about the importance of his protests and really the impact it had um, because of the peaceful protest and the success with which his protests have had. Uh, Malik has been at this work for a really long time, really predates George Floyd by a long time, and, has really been a voice, a continued voice in our community. And I really wanted to have this conversation because Malik gets painted as uh, just this character caricature of him gets painted as a guy that is just out there. He wants to defund the police. He hates all cops and and is just this super radical guy. But you're going to get to know him and understand where he's coming from and why he's about this business, and how it's impacted his life. And I think when you understand that, you see Malik not as just a radical thing, but as a human being who has had uh, lots of experiences that have led him to come to a place where he feels like the most important thing, and his purpose right now is to lead the charge on police reform in our community. So now's the point where I get to tell you a little bit about what I'm learning about or what I've been thinking about. I've recently been reading this book called Caste by Isabella Wilkerson. And in this book, she learns about and describes the caste system that is built into India. And the caste system in India is not a caste system based on the color of your skin, but it's based on just uh, where you were born, whether you were born to an upper class or lower class. So these, these uh, if you're in the upper class or the lower caste, you can't tell by someone's physical appearance but nonetheless, there is this caste system in place there. And in the, in the book, she compares it and contrasts it to the caste system here in the United States. And we don't call it that very often. We describe it as racism. But she very uh, eloquently puts about and talks about how it's, it's a caste system. And one part in this book really, really struck home to me. And it was when she was talking about how, as she is uh, learning about these things and writing the book, she gets invited to a conference to talk about abolishing caste, and it's in India. And so she's surrounded by all these people uh, from India, and they are at a conference about abolishing caste. And what she starts to realize is that she can, even at this conference, look around the room. And not by anyone's physical appearance, but she could tell who was born in the high caste versus who was born in the low caste. And the way that she could do that was by their interaction with one another. She found that those who were born in the high caste were very comfortable uh, correcting other pe- the other people from the lower caste. They felt entitled to explain what the other person had just described, uh, they even physically stood over them at times. And it was almost this automatic dance that was played out between the higher caste and the lower caste. And this really started to blow my mind. You know, here, if you ask anyone around, are you racist? The answer is going to be no. Uh, and not only no, but they're going to be offended. But these people in uh, I- who were out to abolish the caste system in India were still portraying and still had this bias in them. And it was so apparent that someone from the outside could distinguish it. And that is actually what racism is here in America. And so that I had to take a deep look at myself. Do I do these things? If They're totally and completely unconscious. But I'm sure, I'm sure these things, I, I do these sort of things. Uh, where I, I, as a white male am what it was born into the privileged caste and as part of the privileged caste i have all of these unconscious sort of behaviors where i probably feel entitled to explain something uh that someone else has said uh whether that be a woman we know that as mansplaining or whether that's someone from a different race or uh, or I feel maybe I feel more comfortable correcting them. Maybe I stand or I wield my confidence. I wield uh, in a way that is really about uh, subjugation and subordination uh, more than it is about uh, anything else. And so this is something I think we all need to really think about deeply. It really blew my mind when I started thinking about this and that this, uh, we describe it as racism, but... And it is, it's exactly what it is because we, our caste is, our caste system is broken down by race, but we don't like to talk about it like that, but it is, it's racism, but it's, it's the caste system that we've been established in that, that carries on and continues on because a lot of it is subconscious. And in order for us to overcome that subconscious, we're going to have to learn about it. It takes work. It takes us thinking about when we are applying And when we are taking advantage of the caste system, and until we are able to think about it in those terms and recognize it in ourselves and in our behavior, it's going to continue to perpetuate, and not only in our behavior and us on an individual level, level, but on a policy level, what sort of policies are in place in America, in Utah, in Ogden that perpetuate the caste system, that perpetuate racism in a way that's unconscious? but yet is still set up to make it so the upper caste, that white privileged male class, continues to get to be the dominant caste in society. These things are prevalent, not only in our own behaviors, but in our in our policies. So check out the book. Again, it's called Cast by Isabella Wilkerson. And uh, it I think it's something we can all really learn from. But now... We're going to get to have this really great conversation with Malik Dio.
0: Hey,
1: Malik, welcome to the show. We're happy to have you on.
0: Thanks for
2: inviting me, Kevin. I appreciate it.
1: You know, I'm super excited about this conversation. If if you've been in Ogden and been paying attention in the last few months, then you have heard of Malik Dio. Uh, because he's been out there and he has been fighting for police reform. And the interesting thing is, is as I've got to know Malik a little bit and kind of looked into, it, is it's not. I just started no- noticing him more recently because of the historic moment we're in. But he has been fighting for these things uh, for much longer than that. And so today, Malik, we just want to get to know you. Like, tell me, you know, what what? Tell me what has sparked you uh, to fight for police reform?
2: Okay, well, um, of course it was with the whole hands up, uh, don't shoot movement, I can't breathe uh, movement, Trayvon Martin, uh, all those things that started happening about six or seven years ago. Uh, But prior to that, I was living in Phoenix, Arizona uh, for about 15 years and I was participating in activism over there, uh, not as a leader, but I would attend protests and rallies for uh, they were mainly what, what time or,
1: what time frame are we talking here
2: uh, we're talking 94 95 no I'm sorry 2004 2005 um in Phoenix Arizona with the SB 1070 law that was targeting uh, immigrants and stuff like that so um, tell me about that law. Was, what
1: give me a little just a little rundown our listeners don't know anything about that if i don't know anything about i don't know anything about that so anyway. SB
2: 1070 <laughs> is a senate bill that they passed um to give the police authority to ask people what their citizenship is based on their appearance
1: okay okay and so you are you're you're there you're starting to get involved you're and 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 starting to to learn about about or starting to get involved with these sort of things at that time yes
2: correct correct Correct.
1: so take us back a little bit further uh we want to know who malik is What what's your what's your life story? Are you are you Utah native? Where tell tell us take us back to Malik. We want to know about you.
2: Uh I was born in New York City, 1970, just gave away my age there. And (laughs) I was raised there till I was about nine or ten years old and we moved here to Utah. Uh my family's originally from Puerto Rico. My grandfather came in the 1940s uh from Puerto Rico and worked on the railroad and retired from Southern Pacific here in Utah. Uh, My mother was raised in New York, and uh, she was part of the, uh, she she wasn't part of the leadership, but she was uh, involved with the original uh, El Comite uh, social justice group from New York City uh, from the early 1970s. And so the activism uh, comes from my mom, but it also comes from my grandfather because he was escaping oppression that was happening in Puerto Rico during the 1940s um, with police over there, American police oppressing uh, American citizens, or Puerto Rican Islanders. And so he escaped to the United States, which is the land of his oppressors, uh, to escape oppression on his own island, right? And that's when he came here and he worked for the railroad and stuff like that and uh, built built his home here.
1: Activism is deep in your bones. You're not our first guest that uh, has activism deep in. We had Miss Betty on, and she has a a similar story of uh, being involved in politics and activism uh, uh, from an early age. Uh, So uh, you you move you move to Utah um, nine nine or ten years old. Uh, What is that experience like? Moving from New York City. (laughs) New York City was that right?
2: too? It was a culture shock. I mean, it was pretty cool because when I first came to Ogden if you're thinking 1979, 1980, it was like Mayberry. It was like, you know, I I grew up in the city and I came here and it was just like it was just like small small town. I seen her, you know, kids going to the river and playing and you know just like in the street it was just unheard of right it was just like what you I used to see it on tv and then I came here and I was like oh wow suburban lifestyle you know it was pretty interesting but also my daughters are activists and uh, I got my grandkids involved in activism as well so right now we're five generations of activists in my family.
1: Five generations deep in in activism that's amazing. Uh, okay, so you're you're growing you're growing up in Utah. Um, what's it What's it like uh, being a person of color uh, in Utah at this time? And are you experiencing anything with race or with the police? Or uh, what What are you experiencing in this time that leads you?
2: Oh up yeah. To so my experiences. So I went to an elementary school called Mountain View School. It was on Lincoln Avenue, like around 15th uh, Street, and I remember going to the class. I remember all the Hispanic kids and kids in the class not knowing Spanish. That was pretty weird to me. Um, I I got made fun of because I had a very strong New York accent. And I remember my grandfather coming to pick me up from school one time and he didn't speak English. And he was talking to me in Spanish. When I answered him back in Spanish, the other kids laughed. You know, that made me pretty it, it made me embarrassed to to really speak Spanish after that in, in public. And to the point where I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't want him. I didn't want the other kids hearing him talk uh, to me in, in Spanish. So it was a. I went through a little identity crisis and wanting to fit in. It was very LDS Mormon back then. Um, like I said, maybe a f- two or three Hispanics in the class, one bl- black kid, and coming from New York, it was like all blacks and a few Hispanics in my class, and I came in. It was like the complete. Uh, reversal and I just to fit in so much I just I I saw whiteness and you know at that age I just wanted to fit in and I, I it was this I don't know if it was a self-hatred or being ashamed of myself but that that definitely was a, a factor growing up in middle school and, and
1: uh, Interesting. I say into
2: high school yeah.
1: Would you say that you uh, in that process of fitting in you started you tried to suppress your your culture a little bit or and uh, like was that part of it or or
2: it was hard because on one I mean I grew up with Hispanics I grew up on Lincoln Avenue 17th Street uh that neighborhood was very Hispanic back then um being gentrified right now uh, so I grew up around it but as far as like school or work I had to take on a different persona you know I had to sit up more straight I had to speak be more articulate uh, when I spoke, you know, I, I I couldn't use slang, or I had to make sure my homies didn't show up to my job to say, "Hey, what's up?" Or, you know, it, it, you you have to you have to learn how to live on both sides, right? You have to learn how to be proud and live within your culture, and then you have to learn how to adapt and and look safe and be acceptable to white society. So, uh, that's something I I I still deal with a lot. Um,
1: Man, in, that in Utah, to an extent, that is something quite frankly, that white people just don't think about, (laughs) right? Like, like, it's just something that I've never had to think about. I've never had to deal with. And, um, I could, like, I could imagine as you're going through that and, and like, you're talking about middle school age and like all of us are trying to find our identity there and you've got, you're bouncing back and forth from one identity to the next and trying to trying to balance that and trying to fit in that, that, that seems just really, really tough.
2: And then, you know, teachers were very discriminating, discriminating, you know, if, if me and a white kid were talking in the back of the class, I'd be the one, you know, who got pointed out, you know, things like that would happen, or I'd be the one who got, you know, sent to the principal's office, or if I got in a fight, you know, with a white kid. I was the one who got, you know, suspended for it or whatever. So, you know, and I think that goes on to a, to a certain extent here still, you know, I'm sure.
1: Yeah. And I think there's, uh, you know, I know, I don't know about locally, but I mean, we have data on uh, you know, the, the people of color, students of color uh, get in trouble go to the principal's office more uh, way disproportionately more. And, and that has a a lot to do with racism. And, um, and you, you, you experienced that personally.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, you know, and then I joined the military, you know, for 10 years. I joined when I was 17 and the military, although it's very integrated and, you know, it's uh, everybody's wearing the same uniform. When it comes time for battle, we're all on the same side. We'll all die for each other during peacetime. You know, once it's five o'clock, six o'clock, everybody's off. You know, the whites go this way brown people go this way black people go this way you know the military's really? very se- segregated after really? after duty, duty hours yeah I mean you have groups that you know might click together you know like inter you know uh, racial groups and stuff like that that stick together but for the most part everybody splits in in their own direction after work yeah so you know I would uh hang out with hispanics and I would hang out with a, a, a lot of whites and I'd hang out with a lot of blacks you know with the whites I would accept a lot of passive racism. You know, back then whites were allowed to have Confederate flags in the barracks room and stuff like that. And you know, you would hear N-word and you would just, you know, that was just them talking. So there was Confederate
1: flags in the barracks just hanging around.
2: Back in the day, you know, you got somebody from Tennessee who's a redneck and they throw it up. They don't care, you know. But I think back then it wasn't as a sensitive issue or topic as it is today. So even though we looked at it as, you know, racist sergeant so and so you know, when it came to time to it at work, you know, we worked together as a team. We didn't, you know, bring that into it.
1: That That is interesting. I, I don't know if, I've, if I knew that or thought about that. I mean, I think we hear a lot about, you know, military being this place where people have to come together uh, and experience, you have to experience people of different cultures and you have to work together and work through it. And we think of that as a big way that um, helps us overcome division and, and, but that a lot of, most Americans don't get to experience anymore. Um, And you're saying that's true on one hand that you guys did that and and did that a lot, but on one hand also there was, it was still sort of this fracture and division that that occurred as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But it was never like, it never caused division. It was just, everybody just went their own separate ways after work, you know, uh, a lot of the, you know, people who were in the country Western would all, you know, go, hang out at that bar that weekend the Puerto Ricans would go to a salsa bar you know the blacks would go to you know R&B club and you know just kind of like
0: that
1: yeah yeah I guess that's kind of yeah just a natural process of uh you know finding people that are like you um yeah yeah um so uh in in Utah was your was your mom still involved in activism uh at this time or did she leave that in New York or
2: Yeah, because uh, we came in about 79. So by then, the civil rights movement, all that stuff died down the, you know, the uh, Puerto Rican Liberation Movement, which is what the Comité was uh, in New York, uh, that died down. So all these movements died down, they moved to, we moved uh, from New York to Utah, because my grandfather had ties here from when he worked in the railroad. And uh, my mom never really got involved in activism. There wasn't here, nothing going on. We was just in boring Ogden, Utah at the time. And activism was never even a conversation. I mean, I knew my mom said she used to go protest Vietnam and all this stuff back then, you know, but uh, it was never like a a topic of conversation until, you know, the whole hands up, don't move, uh, shoot movement started, Trayvon Martin, all these, you know, uh, police shootings and just all, you know, then locally with Dylan Taylor and Darian Hunt happening in Salt Lake, and then creeping its way here to Ogden. It's
1: so. Uh, do you think? Sorry to interrupt you there. Uh, do you think you you mentioned like this activism didn't start happening until this the other things started happening nationally? Do you? What's your opinion about were these were there was there racism in policing? Was there uh, abusive use of force? Was this thing? Was this stuff happening in Ogden in our community the whole time, and uh, we just didn't see it, we didn't know about it. There wasn't enough uh, movement or push around it to um, to to bring it to light. What what was happening during that time, and have you spoke with people during that time?
2: I'll tell you exactly what happened during that time. It, yes, it's always been a problem in Ogden, and um, so like yeah, I moved here like around '79, right? Uh, anybody who was raised with me in Ogden who's an adult now everybody in my family, except for myself and a male cousin and a female cousin I have, the three of us, all the adults have been arrested in my family. Okay, I'm talking about my mom's been arrested by OPD. My grandfather, when he was alive, he was arrested by OPD. My uncles have been arrested by OPD. All my cousins have been arrested by uh, OPD. My whole family, uh, practically, except for just a handful of us from my generation uh, were, yeah, if I if I wouldn't have joined the army and if I'd have stood nog, Noggin, I'd have got arrested by OPD myself.
1: Wow, and what what is their experience behind that? I mean, so you know, uh, maybe like minor <laughs> drug possessions, ask, like, or like, are they, are, you you know. are you just in a crime? Are you in a crime family? Or <laughs> no, we're not in a crime family.
2: We're just uh, you know, uh, my family was based at the time. We were basically made up of people who worked at Hillfield and their kids. And, uh, yeah, you know, I had some uncles that, you know, liked to party or whatever and stuff like that, but never like any heavy crime, maybe like minor drug possessions or not showing up to court and getting arrested for that. You know, it's the same stuff, all the things related all the to white bu-
1: Yeah. Same stuff, all the white businessmen were doing at the yeah, same time. Nothing just...
2: heavy, nothing heavy, you know, but, uh, a lot of the older ones that were older than me, like, let's say my, uh, older uncles or cousins that are old enough to be like uncles and stuff, most of them uh, were in Utah state prison. Wow. Yeah. Man. Most of them all went to Utah state prison. So, you know, if, if I could just m- imagine my family, you know, the amount of us who, who, uh, people from my family who were getting locked up during that time, um, I could imagine, uh, everybody else's families as well.
1: And how far, how, how far do you think this went into this, in the system? Uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's police officers arresting, are, are, are the, I mean, do you have experience with that? Like, or your family, are the judges doing, uh, locking people up disproportionately, people of color? Um, how has this deepened in the, in the system in Utah at this time?
2: If you remember right around the turn of 2000, Ogden was heavily, heavily populated with Mexican immigrants, heavily populated with me- Mexican immigrants. And what was taking place at the time is uh, a lot of police would set up like traffic stops at the Mexican clubs, Mexican clubs down the street, like on wall and stuff like that. And they would set up these stops and they would stop all these immigrants and then they would charge them with DUIs. And from there, they'd be shipping them to Denver and from Denver, they'd be deporting them. So and it wasn't really being talked about that much, but there was like a two year period where Ogden was purging like all these Mexican immigrants out of Ogden. And it was just like going under everybody's nose
1: yeah whoa that's stuff that i am uh just not aware of you know i'm in the i'm in no, I'm, a not reported, I'm a junior in high school at the time and yeah. like just oblivious
2: yeah so like if it's not something that was reported or big story but if you're in the know and if you're in the neighborhood like on the ground like i am and i just know people you see it happening you hear it happening and you just you know you just you saw it happen
1: yeah i can't this is blowing my mind, uh, but so you are—you um, know, your your mom's out of activism. You're you're just kind of experiencing these things growing up, and then there's this national movement, and 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 you're like, okay, wait, this is happening here. What can I do? What was that experience like for you, and what did you do um, at uh, at that time?
2: I moved here from Phoenix, and the first thing uh, I found out is wait, that there were. Some... Where did
1: you get to Phoenix? You you ended up in Phoenix
2: yeah after I got out of the Army, I lived in Phoenix okay. for fifteen years. Oh wow, yeah. okay. And then I moved to Ogden. so i've gone I was gone for like almost twenty five years from here um, before I moved back. So um, they had the gang injunction going on in Ogden, and I knew a couple of girls that got served with it that were friends of my cousins and I had no what's no the gang, clue what's was. the
1: gang injunction?
2: The gang injunction is a junction that was in Ogden City. Um, that was designed to supposedly um, put restrictions on gang members um, of of the Ogden Tresa gang. Uh, There was a lot of uh, civil rights violations involved in that uh, injunction, such as putting curfews on them, not allowing them to hang out with other uh, family uh, gang members, even if they were related to each other. Um, They weren't allowed to wear gang clothing. They just had so many restrictions on them that violated their civil rights that it got. You can
1: restrict what people can wear and who they can hang out with.
2: Well, they had a a provision in the injunction that if three people or more gathered are wearing the same clothing, that could be one of the uh, uh, requirements that they mark down as to to be able to classify you as a gang member. Hmm. Yeah, so the ACLU jumped on it. They overturned it in the Supreme Court. I think Randy oh, Richards wow. was involved in it as well, and Mike Studebaker, and they got it overturned. But now the city of Ogden's gotten sued. Weber County's getting sued uh, because of it, because they were wrongly serving this injunction to people who were not in the gang. They were serving it to them based on their
1: race. Yeah, so, I mean, this totally is... a. Uh... Uh, unconstitutional civil rights, civil rights violation uh, that was happening in our community. Um, yeah.
2: So I turned to this person, I said, so who's, who's fighting this for you guys? Who's, who's trying to, you know, uh, fight against this, you know, uh, crap that they're putting on you guys. And, and you're talking nobody. to the guy,
1: the guy at the ACLU? at this. No, the girl, the girl who's uh,
2: been served the injun- injunction. Oh, okay. And she says, yeah. well She's like, there's no nobody here. There's no activists here, nothing like that. So um, that made me, when I looked around and saw that nobody was fighting for anything here and just getting their rights trampled on, I was like, no, I'm not gonna just sit here, a woke person, and just watch this happen. I'm gonna, I'm gonna step up and do something if nobody else is.
1: Wow. Okay. So that, that makes all the sense in the world. Like why you are in the neighborhood, you're are experiencing literal unconstitutional civil rights violations right there. Um, that turned out to be, um, ruled unconstitutional in that way. And you ha- you are looking at your, your neighbor and saying, um, I you need somebody fighting for you.
2: I knew I had to get involved with the community. Uh, By that time, it was nearing the end of the uh, fight on the injunction, so it was coming uh, to an end. Uh, However, there were talks about bringing it back, and I had set up a few protests uh, against those, uh, against the injunction being brought back. They were going to change the language to make it legal, and I had held a couple of protests and Uh, came out uh, in a couple of stories in the examiner saying no we you know we cannot have that brought back um, in any way shape or form because they were racially profiling with it and it was used as a stop and frisk type thing as well and it was just no good for Ogden it wasn't a good image for us uh, or uh, our Hispanic community so um, they never brought it back they never brought it back.
1: Wow okay so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna fast forward a bit here and you know one of the the times I was able to, uh, see you involved in, in your activism. and, And one of the things you're doing was, um, when we had, um, uh, Giovanni Mercado's sister on Ruby, um, and we talked about his shooting and, uh, I went back and I watched the city council meeting and I watched the police chief, uh, talk about how the family had been taken over by radical, uh, you know, radical groups that are pushing an agenda. And I I love this about you. You stood up and you're like, I am that radical guy that the police chief talks about.
2: You know, I mean, exactly. And this same uh, radical guy, right, uh, had Senator Mike Lee uh, quote him on the Senate floor and is in the Senate record. So I'm not just... Tell me
1: about that. Tell me about that.
2: So, uh, do you remember the, uh, take a knee protest on Washington where over 2,200 people showed up? Vaguely. <laughs> okay. So that was a big deal in Ogden over the summer. As far as protests happened, it was right after the, uh, George Floyd oh, okay, uh, yes. killing by police. Yeah. I yeah. Uh, had that huge protest and, um, that right there was, uh, that right I lost my train of thought. Where were we going with that? Mike Lee, Mike Lee. Mike Lee, yeah. So uh, Mike Lee quoted some things that I had said at that protest, right? Um, I had mentioned that, you know, this isn't a war against us and the police, you know, that OPD just lost an officer. Um, You know, he was our officer too. We're not against them. You know, we're here for police reform. And, you know, just to paraphrase what, you know, what I said, and, you know, he ended up quoting me on that. And uh, he's quoted me on that several times to, Try to let people know, hey, even you know, though there's friction between the police and the community, these things can be done peacefully.
1: Yeah, and and obviously, when you said that in the city council meeting, you said a tongue in cheek, like I'm just a guy, like I'm not I'm not a I'm not some radical uh, person. I'm here for our community. I'm here for our people. Um, I'm here for you guys. Like we want to work. We need to work together at this. And you know, I think that's what we're we're seeing now is is who you are and and what you stand for, and you are continuing to have uh, meetings with with Chief Watt and uh, Mayor Caldwell right now. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think you had one two days ago. Is that right?
2: Um, they weren't able to make the last meeting. However, I went to a de-escalation training that um, they presented to us.
1: So, so you went to a de-escalation training so they they did they invite you to this de-escalation training because of where you're at or did have you how how did you work yourself in into that position
2: well eventually i want to go to the civilian police academy but um i was just uh we were around our group was uh selected by um the police department uh to attend this uh de-escalation so we could experience uh some of the training that the police go through
1: and so, I mean, this is the things you've been working for. You've been working at. You've been holding protests about uh, de-escalation. You've been holding protests about um, use of force. And, and so you're there at the de-escalation training. What was it like? Was it everything you'd hoped it to be and more?
2: No, I expected a lot different. Um, I expected maybe some demonstrations by the police or some scenarios. Um they had us go through this simulator. I went through the simulator. There was three different scenarios um, where you had to make a decision whether or not, you know, you pull the trigger or not, you know, for example, um, one of them is a guy running at you towards a knife with a knife, you know, do you shoot? Do you, do you tell him to stop? You know, type of thing. Right. Another one is, uh, a guy arguing with his wife in the garage and you know he's got a hammer and you got to decide what you're going to do are you going dis- to de escalate are you going to shoot type thing so what it is is this simulator is simulating whenever a police officer needs to make a split second decision at the blink of an eye right so it's that type of training right which is not really what I'm fighting against I I totally understand that there's times uh where police officers got to make that split second decision um without thinking and and they ain't got you know an extra second to see if you know what's going to happen they gotta shoot or you know save somebody's life or something like that that's not the type of reforms i'm fighting that's not something i'm fighting against right that's something i want the police to be good at that kind of stuff right what i'm fighting against is uh putting people's knee on their neck uh uh, for, uh, you know, over six minutes and killing them. I'm against, you know, uh, choking somebody like Eric Garner, you know, I'm against, you know, shooting somebody like, you know, Trayvon Martin. I'm against somebody, uh, getting shot in the back like Patrick Harmon while he's running away from police. So that's the, you know, and those simulators aren't set up for that type, those type of scenarios. That's, that's based on the personality
1: and uh, of the police officer, right? And the culture the the people that put it together the culture. And I think, I think a lot of times in the media or anywhere else, we get caught up in the, in the body cam, the moment of the, of the, of the decision to pull a trigger. And and I think when we had Ruby and David Timmerman on uh, what we, what we learned is like, okay, well, how could have that been handled? Rewind way back. How could have it been handled differently from the moment they get the call uh, that there's someone with a, with a knife. From uh, how they approach the the space to uh, you know, and so there's just there's so many other ways, and, and yet we get hyper focused. And apparently, even in the de-escalation training that they're supposed to be doing, uh, they're hyper focused on the moment of the of where you have to pull a, decide to pull a trigger or not.
0: Correct,
2: correct. So and it's all based on shooting, right? It's all based on using. Not using less lethal uh, force, right? It's based on shooting. so that's the bad part of it, right. Um, as far as Giovanni Mercado, uh, that situation, just as a layman who's never been you know a police officer, there's I don't think it's so much like whether or not they were justified. you know the question should be whether there's other uh, methods they could have used. That uh, were less lethal, non-lethal, and if those things do exist, why weren't those employed uh, instead, and why aren't those being used instead in general, if that's the case? Uh, I think those are the questions we need to ask. Because if we're asking if the persons at, if the police are justified, the answer is probably going to be yes, because the way the laws are written is always are always going to be in favor, you know, of the police, right? So um, we can't look at whether it's justified. We got to look at whether you know. It was necessary. Whether there was other options that could have been used that weren't, and then we have to ask why weren't they?
1: Definitely, definitely. I I, I totally agree that we 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 get hyper focused on on the moment of the use of force, and and we need to back up and talk about the culture of of the police department and and the culture of the police. And um, so, w- what is your opinion on um, you know as, as we're sitting here to, today this morning that an Ogden police officer uh, shot a homeless person, um, who supposedly attacked the police officer. Uh, but it was 730 this morning. They were, they had entered, um, a shop, um, on 31st and wall. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I, we can have anything to speak to on the details of that. There's nothing out there about it, but what we can speak to is again, the culture about, um, you know, after the shooting, the deputy chief young comes out and, and says you know hey uh, the the homeless population and those experiencing mental illness are a danger to our community and um you know really drives a stereotype that is not productive to anybody uh the as far as as far as our community safety like our community doesn't need to fear the homeless population or fear, fear those with mental illness we need to have empathy um And so that just to me really drove home the culture. So, what is your how can the police be either better trained or out of dealing with things like mental illness or homelessness? What have you learned in your time?
2: What I'm going to say is this you know, when people talk about defund the police, they're not taking them talking about taking all their money away. First of all, they don't belong on a call for a homeless, uh, for a mentally ill person. Okay. They don't belong on those calls. They don't belong on uh, calls about, unsheltered people why there's organizations and charities uh that can help those people out police have no business there so police need to deal with crime okay um and when i think about how they're singling these people in our community out just because they're unsheltered don't mean they're part of they're not part of ogden right they're part of our community yeah uh, especially right now with the covid virus going on unemployment stopping for a lot of people they can't pay rent more, more unsheltered people are going to, you know, be appearing in Ogden. So what are you going to do? Paint the face of a criminal on them just because of their circumstances? That's ridiculous. Totally. And what else are they saying about the mentally uh, challenged? Are, are they saying that Lyndon Cameron, 13 years old, just because he has autism, you know, deserved to get shot just because, you know, mentally ill people are a danger to our society. What kind of crap is that? I think they need to have somebody else write their uh, statements when somebody gets shot. Most definitely.
1: That did blow my mind. I mean, we had, uh, my friend, Van Aston, who is, uh, the, he's really the primary care provider at Hope Clinic. He's a PA there. And, uh, he texted me immediately and he was like, what, like, what is this statement? He was so mad. This is a person who deals with, uh, those experiencing homelessness, uh, uh, uh on a daily basis Uh, are on our unsheltered community and he's just like these are people and we do not need to drive stereotypes that they're dangerous it's it's not helpful to anyone um no it's not
2: helpful and it's people we know one time i uh we did a homeless outreach um over there by the uh, lantern house and i knew a, a, a lady there who actually attended one of my protests one time you know she was at a better place at that time but it could happen to anybody you know and we you know, we can't, we can't criminalize them. We can't, you know, anymore. And I think that's a, that's an area that we're lacking as far as like police reform. You know, we're right now, you know, we have a lot of focus on racial justice and, you know, helping uh, mentally challenged people, but, you know, the homeless is a, is a part of the civilian population uh, that doesn't get too much attention when it comes to police reform. And they should, because when they're saying, Hey, well, just as many you know, whites are getting arrested just as Hispanics. Well, guess which whites they are?
1: Which whites?
2: (laughs) Without shelter.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. Without. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. They're they're padding their stats with. uh...
2: Typically, I can get shot by the police. But if I don't have 120 grand to put down on the best lawyer, I'm not going to be able to sue that department. Right. So I'm going to definitely be a target for them. Whereas, you know, my friend who might be, you know, uh, from a, a, a family or a culture that's well off, the police are going to basically hands off of those people because they know those people have money. They know their community is going to pull together and not tolerate that type of stuff.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just, I really appreciate you bringing up these conversations. I think we we've got to start thinking outside the box. I mean, I, I, I got, I got rear-ended the other last week and it wasn't, a, it wasn't super big deal, but I'm sitting there and I'm like, and I'm filling out my paperwork. Cause I got a clipboard. It was, it was a highway patrol. Cause I was on an off ramp and um, I'm sitting there filling out my paperwork. And then I like, I'd already been out of the car, but I'm like, do I, do I take this to the police officer? Like, do I approach the police car? What, what, what do I do? And, and then suddenly I'm like, why the hell are the police here in the first place? Like this is a this is an auto accident. Like the police do not need to handle this. If we if we could if we could if the police could be handling, uh, you know, criminal activity rather than traffic accidents, uh, we could. One we know that the more interaction you have with police, the less favorable opinion you have of them. Um, and and so we we could just you know make it so the police didn't have to do that work. Like nobody wants to get a ticket. Like nobody likes, nobody likes that job. So why are we making the police do this dirty work of the city, uh, which is uh, writing tickets and going to traffic stops and, 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 you know, somebody else, I mean, yeah, you're right. There's, you know, Malik's given me the money sign that the, the city needs their money for, for this. Uh, and that's and a, and it's a revenue generator, but somebody else can do that job. Right? Like somebody else, like yeah. I know it's, I know that's the standard in our, in our, in the country is that the police enforce traffic, but we, we need to rethink that,
2: right? Like we the need to rethink do everything. That. The police do everything. They work in our schools. Okay. They police our children. Okay. Um, they police our, 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 uh, those without shelter. They, they, they get involved in family fights. I mean, they get involved in arguments. They get involved in all kinds of stuff. They don't have no business in. They should just be worrying yeah. about crime.
1: Well Malik one th- you mentioned something earlier that i was i was interested in and you said it in passing civilian police academy what is that
2: uh, it's a it's a, an academy i believe they have set up for civilians who want to go see what it's like to go through police training um it's not as lengthy or as in-depth as the real police academy but it gives you a snapshot of uh, of what they go through
1: so do people do this is there, is this just like something yeah. they have that nobody that people yeah, they have does, it.
2: people can apply for it yeah you can apply for it you got to speak to Diana Lopez with OPD. She can get you going on that. Interesting.
1: Um, so tell me what you're doing now. You, you talked about El Comite. Is that how I don't? Is that how I say it? Um, yes. Tell me about your organization, what you're doing, and what we or the listeners can do to to help your organization and help further this work that you're doing. That's um, clearly really really important work that can make um, our our neighborhoods safer.
2: Yeah. So uh, basically, we have two things going on right now. Um, one of them is, uh, police reform and bringing awareness to, you know, uh, police brutality and such and other local issues that, you know, require that type of, uh, activism. And we're also doing, uh, outreach for the, uh, unsheltered, like every couple of weeks, uh, we'll go out to the homeless shelter and set up there, set up some tables and, uh, start, uh, giving food out and feeding everybody. And we make sure that everybody's fed and, uh, most of the time so far, uh, people have been able to get seconds. So um, we've been doing that, you know, we got to always remember, got to give back to the community. And I see these uh, people without shelter. And you know, there's a lot of mentally ill people there. Uh, I'd say a lot of them are. And um, it's scary that, you know, just like what happened today, it could be any of them, you know, wrong place, wrong time, right? Uh, wrong scenario, they can just easily be caught up and the police already look at them as dangerous which is also troublesome
1: i mean they said it explicitly today
2: yeah yeah that's their that's their words
1: yeah well, I, Hey, I, that's incredible work. And, you know, so, uh, those of if, if, if those of people out there that still think Malik is just some radical guy hell bent on, uh, bringing down the police department. Uh, he's also feeding our homeless population. So yeah,
2: there's one thing I want to do too. If your listeners are watching, if they want to help out, I want to create a music program for at-risk children. Um, I'm talking the most at-risk children that are out there that pretty much are, are living a hopeless experience at that time. Uh, I have uh, want to do a guitar program. So if anybody out there has any old guitars laying around, any of them in your closet, missing strings, it don't matter. Um, find me on Facebook. Um, I need about eight or nine guitars. I already have people who are willing to teach and a space to do it in. I just need the instruments.
1: Dude, I believe awesome. with music, are, we can get are those you a mus- Are you a of- musician yourself?
2: no but i understand that uh music i I took music in school but i'm not a musician but i know that instruments uh you know are something that can uh, teach you self-confidence um mathematics because it's all music is all you know math beats um it could also you know give you a future you know just to you know be able to play and just you know, pass something on to your children. It keep you out of trouble. It'll keep you off of drugs, keep you out of gangs, you know, if you get dedicated to music. So I think it's a good outlet and it also could enhance somebody's creativity. So it'll bring that creative side out of an angry kid. You know what I mean?
1: Link, that's awesome. You know, I know one of the things we know about these ask at-risk kids is they're in this cycle and um, the only way to break that one of the one of the ways we know that the only that anybody that gets out of that situation there's always somebody that took that kid by the hand and helped them and you know that is how the cycle gets broken and not not every kid you take by the hand is going to break out of the cycle but those that do almost always had somebody that did that and so it sounds like that's just that's what you're trying to do
2: yeah, because, you know, it's not only about fighting the system, right? It's about fighting for our at-risk community, preventing them from getting caught up in the system, right? So we got to fight the system and we got to keep people out of it as well.
1: Okay, really cool. And and for our listeners out there, like, I, you know, I haven't done a, a lot of work with uh, those experiencing homelessness, um, our unsheltered community, um, but we I did uh, last year go and, and participate in the, um, point in time count where, um, on the historically coldest day of the year, um, we go out and try to count the homeless population and we do it in, in the early, early morning hours of the night. And, you know, it, this was a, a good experience, um, for me, um, to get out of my comfort zone and to, uh, go try to help the, the organization. And, and, you know, uh, so there are a lot of people out there helping. You can get involved with Malik's, um, um, organization and, and I'm sure he'll put you to work, uh, uh helping and, and, or you can donate, f- donate food or, um, we'll, we'll post his, um, organization and, and links to his Facebook, uh, in the show notes and everything. So you guys can get that information there.
2: I need some guitars. You guys
1: get the guitars. We're going to get you guitars. It's going to happen. We're right. going to get you guitars. Hey, uh, I just really appreciate this conversation. Is there anything you want anybody else to know that was listening about about what you're trying to do and what you're trying to accomplish?
2: I would say right now, you know, we just can't lose the momentum and the focus of what's Mm. going on, right? Um, You know, George Floyd could be a big story today and then tomorrow something happens in the news, we forget about George Floyd and we don't get, we don't talk about police reform again until the next victim you know, pops up. We need a lot of consistency in this movement. We need a lot of empathy, a lot of understanding, a lot of unity. It's not about right or left, you know, or Republican or Democrat. It's about, you know, having the best police departments we can with the best de-escalation, with the best non-lethal force, you know, with the best officers um, to save their lives, to save our community's lives and to just change the whole mind of policing right we we got to do it together we got to be all
1: in one accord 100
0: 100
1: thanks yeah and that's a wrap for the show today thanks for listening make sure you send this pod over to a friend we'd really appreciate that we want to spread the word we want to spread community and smash that subscribe button while you're at it so you can make sure you catch the next episode and maybe give us a five-star rating Thanks everybody. We'll talk to you next time. And you can find a liquor store all pawn shop. They I
0: think they'll call If you drinking now stop, I sweat. I hear the cell gets a click for real. Don't let me get any spats sweats a zip. The government supplying the people crack for cheap Brainwashing the folks every single cat to sleep. So that Jim Crow side effect trapped in a mind state and it seemed like we at the peak of the crime rate. My brothers, yo, listen, our sisters go missing and we down on the deli, some kill for the dime's sake. I'd rather tell the truth for kicking this rhyme straight. Half the people illiterate, can't read or write. Try to enlighten them, they tell you we don't need your life. See how early we leave college, straight up to the gig. We don't get to graduate, we get trade up to the league. We no second plan, hoping we got it made it into a gig we need more doctors and lawyers politicians and that if you feel this in your heart then i'm probably kicking a to touche and they talk the your power and shout here everybody's dead broken and poverty i swear I leave the everyday life based on mad wishes the only jobs to have was provided by bad bitches they'd rather get some brain than lord that broad knowledge can't pay back selling me and we can't afford college around here the stake is always high so they banned screaming fuck the law they rather leave and die for their gangs they got no. the the lose, but they sick with hate. mad of the world, we gotta bone to peak with fate. It's a white privilege for the kids to the slave master. We were left for dead design to hit the grave bastard. It's a setup, and we ain't meant to survive. Look how far we don't came, we made it to the a surprise. Though the prophecy says we open to a prize, spray the word, let it be known that heaven's sent to survive. Right here, alive in the flesh. That's real. Americans ever gotta get up. Volume 1